Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number 55 with your hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest. I'm Ted Tai from National Development. For a second time, Ted, we're so glad uh, you're back here. You're our first guest to come on twice. Wow. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very honored or you guys must uh, be finding things very slow to, to invite me back again, one way or the other. But seriously, I, I you know, I, I've become a, a big listener of the pod and I think you guys are doing great work and I actually learned something. I've, you know, I, I've learned about fire protection and uh, refrigerator freezers and toilets and all sorts of interesting things over the last uh, couple of months. So I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, thanks for listening. Along, tough, yeah. tough night last night, huh? Oh man, those Celtics—they're—they're they're breaking my heart. I've I've been a season ticket holder for thirty-five-ish years right now, um, and uh, you know, I, I just—they they have all the talent, but uh, you got to play four quarters. Yeah, I, I don't understand what their deal is with. They have such a good first half, and then they just go out ice cold in the third quarter. It, re- it blows my mind. It's very frustrating to watch. Did the organization ask to use your likeness for a bobblehead fan? <laughs> they do digital yeah. fans, Mark. Come on. Have you yeah, been watching? I would watching? think that would be a good candidate. Well, I, I will tell you one story. I've also been a Red Sox season ticket holder for many years and have gone to games forever. I have never in my life caught a foul ball. and. Uh, a week ago, I get a package in the mail. It's actually sitting behind me. You guys are watching me on Zoom. And it's a ball, game used ball, landed in my seat during one. <laughs> and the Red That's Sox. Hilarious. The Red Sox were actually nice enough to send it to me. So that was pretty cool. Amazing. That is cool. Well, that's really cool. Part of the reason uh, prompted this second uh, episode together was I think that Dan Ray and I need to correct the record, uh, me most specifically. I think in, in one of our recent episodes, I was I said we were talking utility connections, and I said something to the effect of it's really hard to get any favors from the electrical company or the gas company unless you are like, and I said national development. Yeah. <laughs> And I reported back, Mark, that uh, even national development can't get favors. And, uh, you know, you guys were talking about some smaller projects. Even on our bigger projects, we are in a constant struggle with the utilities. And um, it's become really bad. Um, And I know NAOP and, and others have tried to exert some pressure. So we're still hearing about the strikes and the issues that were two years ago. And now COVID and um, it's become really frustrating to, you know, like in Boston right now, trying to get final connections on some projects, but winter heat is a big issue for, for projects. And um, our, uh, our local gas company, um, the answer is, oh, we can't do temp service anymore because we're so behind from the issues of the last two years. And there ought to be just like a fundamental understanding that utilities are required to provide utilities. And uh, it's just so frustrating when you're trying to build projects. And, you know, now we're, we're building a high rise building and we're talking about, can we get diesel to oh. be able to heat <laughs> during the winter? You know, typically you'd get a, you'd call them, you get a temp gas connection and you'd heat your building. 
out of another building where uh, an electrical utility is supposed to provide us a cost estimate, provide service in 30 days. Nine months later, I still don't have an estimate, never mind uh, the uh, you know agreement to provide service. So something's wrong here. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. The big yeah. three utilities, at least in Boston, are you know the water, sewer, then you've got electric, and then you've got natural gas. You know, we don't have to name the company names, but is one harder than the other, or are they all kind of equally a challenge to, to pull across the finish line? Yeah, you noticed on purpose I didn't name any of them. I would say that uh, gas providers have been typically more difficult. It's a shame because no matter how good you are at your job in terms of planning and executing the work, you can be held up for months just on account that you're, you're waiting for those services and you can't get final inspections. And that's just frustrating. You'd wish there was a process where if you followed, you could get predictable results. Right. Or that uh, because this has been a long running issue with these utilities, that they were appropriately staffed to provide service. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a basic issue. And, you know, things do come up. Storms come up. COVID, no one expects, comes up. Strikes, gas leak issues. They all come up, but you have to be staffed to provide, uh, to provide service on a reasonable basis. And that's... I think it's been a challenge for many developers and contractors in the in the area. Dan sent an article out to us um, yesterday or the day before. I think you sent it to me through WhatsApp. Did you know, well, first of all, Brookline Mass was trying to put in a law saying that you can't use natural gas anymore. And now the attorney general said, you know, even though she's pro-environment, she said, nope, that you can't put a restriction like that in place. <laughs> and I guess... Brookline was going to be the first of its kind. Other, you know, cities and towns nearby were thinking of it. What are your thoughts on, you know, restricting that sort of thing? And do you have any thoughts on the whole yeah, idea I, of forcing people to do one thing or the other? I, I followed, followed that very closely. And, you know, Brookline has been the first on, I don't know, plastic bags and all sorts of things. And it was really the attorney general, I think, overruled it on a technicality. So it wouldn't surprise me if they came back. Look, it's very well-intentioned, right? We all got to get greener. We know that, but we're not there today. So electric is no cleaner than gas today. So I think thinking about convertibility in the future is, 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 is worthy, but to just mandate no fossil fuel, uh, you know, servicing new buildings is difficult right now. It's a hard time to build things. And just that something like that is going to make it a whole lot harder. Yeah. While, while we're on current events, wanted to also bring up the uh, mayoral race, which is coming up in Boston. So recently, City Councilor Michelle Wu threw her hat in the ring. And so, so Mayor Walsh has a, a contender here. Well, I watched the first Michelle Wu commercial, and there's a great little piece in the middle of this Irish lady who says, I want Boston to be for the people and not for the developers. And it just, I don't know, I, t- I took it a little personally. Um, we're people too. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to turn that to you, Ted, to see if you... No, any- no, you're not, Mark. No, I know. That's why I go to therapy every week because I just <laughs> feel bad about myself. Well, I think we are, we're probably like one step higher on the food chain than maybe used car sales people these days. 
but that's 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 pretty typical and it's it's pretty easy to try to pick off the developers you know without um getting into the politics of it mayoral election is always a really interesting time and uh, you know we've seen the um the city council change a lot over the years last couple of years you know it is a a kind of majority women and minority council now which in a lot of ways is a is a very good thing but it's also one where ideology may change quickly and i think that could change the environment for development and uh, again most i i find most of these regulatory changes that people put out there and michelle has put out some over the last uh, year or so are very well intentioned they're intended to improve the environment uh, they're intended to increase affordable housing at some level we all have to be careful about just killing the golden goose so to speak killing the pipeline and that has happened in communities and cambridge may be a great example where it, it just becomes difficult to build because the requirements are so stringent so I think Boston's attitude over the last 10 years, maybe 15 years through uh, Mayor Menino into Mayor Walsh has been keep building, encourage building. And when you build, there's an affordability component that's built into that. And that's the way to encourage it. And if you increase supply, costs ultimately will go down. And actually, in a COVID period like this, it's true. Vacancies have been up. Rents have gone down. Supply is 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 greater. So I I, I just hope you know going going forward that uh, that you know I, both candidates will uh, maintain that kind of attitude, not defeat the great growth that we've seen in the city of Boston over the last couple of decades. Because we're, we're we have new challenges, but we are really well positioned as a city. Do you feel that Boston? almost it's kind of a double-edged sword right the zoning process is complex and difficult compared to a lot of other cities in the country but at the same time it's almost like the city of boston artificially restricts its supply and in doing so it kind of positions itself in a good way to help in times like now where there may be you know a kind of a pump the brakes type mentality but in the long run, it actually helps because you don't like we're not in a, a situation like New York City is where they have a ton of supply and, and not nearly enough demand. So do you feel that that Boston does that on purpose or do you think that it's just kind of the way it is? I think it's probably the latter, Dan. I think it's more the way it is. You know, Boston could, you know, clearly use some uh, some zoning reform. It's an old city, you know, regulations tend to kind of pile up over time. And every once in a while, you need to look at them and say, are we doing this the right way? Is a PDA the right way to do every project? How many projects should actually have to go to the uh, zoning board of appeal? That's fairly normal stuff. So we should, we should always be looking at it. We should always try to streamline it in a way we can. And I think, you know, encourage the goals of, uh, Right now, affordability, green housing, good, responsible, innovative development. We have, in the last six months, we've seen, I guess we're talking residential now, we've seen um, over the city, occupancies drop, 
and we've seen rents drop. And that that's going to make it very difficult to get it to, to justify building new larger scale development, you know, to hit a minimum return threshold because construction pricing hasn't changed all that much. And land, yeah. And land cost um, hasn't changed all that much. So, you know, you, you're seeing your cost side being relatively stable, but your revenue side being a little bit shaky. Have you seen the no, lending no. environment tighten up at all? It has. It definitely has because, you know, what are lenders doing? They're looking at feasibility. Um, fortunately, on our end, we've been able to get a few new projects started. And I really do believe, I don't think we can quite see the light at the end of the tunnel yet with all this, but I think we're going to see it soon. And I think it's going to take some time and it's going to be different in each sector. And we can talk about some of those sectors but we'll achieve some new normalcy in the next couple of years. It's going to take some time. And we haven't seen COVID, but we have seen these blips in real estate over time. They happen. They typically happen every 10 years. And we're in one right now. But, you know, in Boston, the fundamentals of, uh, of the job and employment market, which drives everything, still remains really strong. Last time you were on the pod, we talked about 7 Inc., which is your co-living building. And that's the last building uh, in the Inc. block development. Is it sort of that same mindset that just stay the course and the world will return to normal and you're, you're going to continue on with the co-living or are you guys going to pivot? Well, the tower cranes out there, the steel's going up. So we're, we're definitely staying the course. But even at that, we've looked at some things in the, in the, in the building to be kind of more COVID sensitive and... <laughs> react a little bit, whether it's changing air filtration systems, creating ability to separate smaller meeting rooms uh, that people can use in the building. We're staying the course and we're, we're, we're really bullish on that project moving ahead. But, you know, upcoming projects, what we're, you know, we're going to have to justify uh, to lenders and investors and to ourselves, you know, market feasibility. So we, we, and we've, We've got projects all over the all over the ballpark right now, from uh, uh, you know, several life science projects to uh, to some new residential to uh, other things that we're doing as well. Any hotel? I've heard just anecdotally that hotel is almost impossible to finance. No new hotel. I mean, we were the geniuses who uh, bought, who bought the Midtown Hotel in March, um, <laughs> and uh, it's now being occupied by. 315 Northeastern freshmen who are, by the way, very well behaved there. Um, and Northeastern has done a, a really, really good job uh, with that. They slapped down really quick in week one, right? Where there was a party and they kicked the out West like a End. dozen people, right? Yeah, in the West End. And then, uh, yes. But uh, I, I'm involved actually at Tufts as a trustee where we've been you know, really doing some planning. It can be done. Tufts has done an amazing job. Northeastern has done a really good job. I mean, the key is testing, 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 controlling your students and uh, having the right uh, modes of learning between in-person and, uh, and, and virtual. Those schools where it's been completely out of control have not done the stringent testing and control that places like uh, Northeastern and Tufts and, uh, have done. So it can be done. We agree. We have a property um, that 
has some Bridgewater uh, State University students and uh, the school's done the same thing. They've got testing, I think, every two weeks and contact tracing and limited residence halls. So I agree. I think the universities have really, they don't want to shut down. They don't want to lose enrollment either. So I think there's yeah. a, a motivation to keep it going in the right direction. The one area that, well, the not one area, but the two areas, I think they're really tough are retail and um, an office. You know, we, we have a, a good number of retail properties and a good number of mixed use properties. And a lot of our management attention over the last couple of months has been to try to help tenants stay in business. And uh, it's been really difficult, particularly for the restaurants. You know, over at Ink Block, we immediately closed off some of our internal driveways and created, uh, we call it Ink Block Alfresco, which is outdoor dining for a couple of the restaurants. And we went through a stage of uh, a, a first trying to relieve them of any rent obligations and then trying to talk about um, you know percentage rent for a period of time. And now we're heading into the cold weather. I mean, we're doing outdoor spin classes for one of our tenants over at our ink block underground. Uh, I personally for- appreciate that, Ted. Oh, good. I'm glad yeah, you're a client. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> and that will be, but we're going to try to run that with them through beginning of December. You're more of a bespoke spin studio that rather than uh, turn turnstile, do you go to both? Well, I always like to support our tenants, but I'm a, uh, I'm a big guy at bespoke. And uh, <laughs> actually this morning was my 998th class. So I'm, I'll hit, uh, I'll hit a thousand in the next couple of days. I'm the, but, evil, uh, I'm the evil Peloton guy. <laughs> no, I, I have a Peloton too. So okay. That's okay. That's all good. <laughs> we but, digress. <laughs> Sorry, that's all uh, that we was. digress. But the the point is, you know, these, we're trying to do everything we can for restaurants right now, uh, all across our portfolio. You know, in places like uh, Market Street Linfield, which uh, is a project that we have with uh, WS Development. It's just all about getting it back open, uh, getting people there. It's a struggle. Can I ask you about um, Charles River, uh, which is your investment arm uh, of national development? I know that you have uh, lots of different facets within the company, and Charles River is, is one of them. We talk a lot about raising money and what type of terms we offer, be it waterfall structure, et cetera. How does Charles River go about raising money? What, uh, and, and what was the advent of uh, creating that separate entity uh, within national development? We started Charles River, and I'll probably botch this, but about 12 years ago. And uh, my partner, Brian Kavujian, um, is the uh, president of Charles River and has been really successful in running. Uh, we're now in our fourth fund. You know, at that time, uh, when uh, 10 plus years ago, when we came up with it, there was a kind of a shift in real estate. It used to be, you know, tie up a property and get a good long look at it and then maybe you know, be contingent upon permitting. And, you know, it might be a, might be a, a year between uh, when you looked at it and when you bought it. And it migrated much more closely to where it is today, which is offers in two weeks, buy the thing in a month, move really quickly. And so, you know, we recognized that access to capital was really important and quick capital and smart capital. And, uh, you know, with Brian's leadership, 
we were able to put together a, a, a great group of uh, outside investors to have that kind of capital available to us, both institutional and some family office money and a few individuals. And uh, we, uh, we had a really successful first fund that was just top of class for that, for that particular uh, class of funds. And uh, we've been able to achieve great results for our investors and build upon it. So as I said, fourth fund right now is, is being invested and probably biggest challenge is to find great investments right now. And we do it both through development and through acquisition. In this market, likely we will be doing a good amount of acquisition. And do you um, offer a piece of the equity to your investors or is it more a structured rate of return? It's a return. It's return-based. I'm not going to go into all the mechanics of it, mm. but um, it is return-based. And um, you know, there's a promote that uh, the sponsor receives. But um, it's, uh, no, it's, it's, done, it's done very well. And when you, when you do well, people come back. And, and that's been our... We've also, we've also taken the approach of we are really a, a regional investor and, and regional development and real estate company. And we've said to our investors, you know, that we focus on this area. We know it better than anybody else. We're not going to go far afield and look for investments that we can't uh, really touch. And that, that formula has worked for us for a long time. So that's, that's, that's what we've done. With that being said, and going back to our earlier discussion about COVID and just the overall impact, are you exploring more opportunities outside of the city, more further out of the city, or where do you kind of see things maybe in the next five years? Or do you think it just might go back to the business as usual in the city once we kind of have a vaccine and things are stable? Yeah, it's a good question, Ray. I, I, um, we honestly have looked more in the suburbs lately and uh, you've seen this really quick trend of, of people moving out of the city for a, a bunch of different reasons. On, on our residential side, we, we track, when somebody moves out, we track why. And what we've heard a lot of over the last uh, three or four or five months has been, I lost my job. I'm working remotely. I don't need to be near the city. My roommate moved out and why should I rent an apartment during this time I'm moving home with my parents? You know, those kinds of things that we've heard. And it's also been, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable living in the city and uh, I'd like to move into the burbs. I think it's a short-term thing. I think the city will come back. The fundamentals are so amazing in Boston. There's so much to want to bring you to the city. But in the short term, I think it is going to be, uh, you know, suburban based. We've seen companies looking for uh, places in the suburbs where, A, they can spend less money, B, their employees can uh, drive to work. And like a place like our, our project in Burlington, the District Burlington, which is you know, probably one of the big office centers uh, in the suburbs, we're getting a lot of love right now and a lot of attention from uh, tenants and and prospects just for those reasons. And it's so counter to, you know, what people have been talking about for years, which is get in the city, use public transportation, everything should be transit-based, do something where you can ride your bicycle to work or walk to work. Those are all the right fundamentals. It's just going to take a little bit of time to get back to them. 
to your point about people moving back in with the families, I read an article, I think it said we're at the highest level ever, at least in terms of absolute number, maybe 35 million people in the country living with parents or grandparents. So I, I wonder when that when things start to change and, and go back, will that create even more demand for housing? Will it, will it swing back? It should, you know. My son is probably the great example of that. So he's an investment banker in New York. His firm is working remotely at least till next summer. He gave up his apartment and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's working, uh, working remotely from this area for the time being. So why would you pay rent for a period of time when you don't have to be in the city? And I've seen so many cases like that. So you know, history uh, history doesn't happen quickly. It, it it plays out over time, and uh, and it's a trend, and the and the trend will uh, change. I think we touched the third rail a little earlier with politics. We talked about yeah. zoning appeals last episode, so I'm going to keep with that, and I'm going to ask you. Um, a lot of our listeners and maybe smaller developers want to know what the inflection point is. When is it that you go union? Why do you go union on a project? Can you talk about your experience with that? So I think you, you do know that we do have a affiliated construction company, Cranshaw Construction. And uh, Cranshaw builds, not just for national development, builds over half its work for kind of the who's who of development firms in, in Boston, many large projects, uh, building at uh, Assembly Row and at uh, Arsenal Yards and throughout the city of Boston. Cranshaw has always been signatory to the Carpenters, and we've had a great long-term relationship with the Carpenters and uh, built some projects 100% union and some uh, with mixed labor. So Boston's changed a bit. There are certain inner core projects that uh, one, I think most developers would think about building 100% union. And then as you move out to the suburbs and even out to the out, out of the inner core, there's some mixed labor projects. So I think most developers would say it's a project by project decision. In some cases, there's not enough open shop subcontractor talent and interest. Um, then you look to the unions. And uh, fortunately, in this market, there typically are good union contractors and good open shop contractors. And uh, the ability to, to mix them has become greater than it has been in the past. So that will be my politically correct, but also honest uh, answer. I guess the only thing else I've seen is if there's a lot of uh, politics behind the project's approvals and, uh, you know, it can help certainly to have such a organized group behind your project if you make certain commitments. The trades in Boston have been uh, smart uh, about how they uh, organize and how they get involved with the political process. I would tell you the political process has been a little bit, uh, I, I think, hands off from, from that um, over the last couple of years. And I think that's a, that's a good development. It, 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 development project approval should not be political. They should be done on the merits. And, uh, you know, it's the same way how much community input versus, uh, versus not. Leave that to the the good folks at the BPDA and in the various town halls around around Boston. Excellent. Have any of you guys watched Fierce City on Netflix? No, haven't seen that. Should we? It's very interesting. Yeah, 
I won't give away too much, but it goes back to New York City when there was a ton of, of collusion and mob involvement in the construction industry. Ray, so, why are you we, drawing parallels between? I, I'm not. I'm saying about I, modern I, unions <laughs> and the mafia. I'm not. I'm saying that's how show. it. That's how it used to be. Yeah, and it's crazy looking at how it used to be. This is it's a tour to the previous but uh, you know, New York is New York has changed a lot, and I, I went down to New York about a year ago to with another developer to look at some of their high rise projects, and you know, he was explaining to me you know, they were they were doing towers on, on an open shop basis, which is something that you could never ever imagine in New York before. And he said, you know, their biggest struggle was the only thing that didn't have open shop uh, strength on it were the the crane operators and. They literally were carrying stuff up from a certain level where they couldn't get the high-rise cranes. So, wow. If you have to go to a central cooling system or if you need post-tension concrete, for example, it's just there, there isn't an there's, open there's shop no yeah. sub that can do a cooling tower on your roof or otherwise a post-tension slab. So there's certain trades and certain features. I think metal panels, another decent example. It's like good luck finding a group that's skilled and knows that part of the trade. Right. Exactly. So having dealt with a lot of the unions, they're pretty reasonable. They're good business people. And uh, their goal is to provide uh, good quality and keep their uh, keep their people employed. You know, the other challenge in Boston for all of us is uh, the diversity of the workforce now. And now that's a requirement on large projects is to have uh, percentages of Boston residents and percentages of women and percentages of minorities on your workforce. And Typically, the unions have been uh, have been better in uh, providing training to uh, to those folks and uh, being able to supply them to jobs. How have you seen the um, dealing with inspections over the last few months and getting things inspected and COs, certificate of occupancies, and all that? I've heard some some things can be a challenge lately. Yeah, it hasn't been bad. Honestly, hasn't been bad. And it was, ISD was probably a little understaffed, maybe a lot understaffed, even before COVID. And uh, I, I believe, you know, the, the mandate came down to try to just make things work, to get things back after uh, all these projects were, were stopped in, in May and June. So hasn't been that bad. And we've seen, because we do a good amount of work in the suburbs as well, the same kind of attitude from the uh, the suburban building inspectors in some cases relying upon the developer's architect for a affidavit to kind of do what you know what they would do to do outside inspections and rely on them so I, I I would say actually you know from our perspective on the larger projects that's been a pretty pleasant experience it doesn't you know it doesn't mean that they're there when you want them but um, we found, uh, you know, Boston ISD and uh, and in the suburbs, people generally have been taken a you know can do get it done attitude. The COVID effects are are real and they do slow down. It has slowed down projects. No one knew how much. A little bit depends on the size of the project, but we're taking guys off buildings to do safety meetings just on COVID and not just regular safety on a regular basis. The going up the elevators on high-rise projects, probably the biggest challenge. People and materials on, a, uh, on an elevator creating separation that you didn't have before. 
you know, you'd go up an elevator and be packed with, uh, with 20 people. And now everybody's trying to go up and stay six feet apart. Not easy. Have you guys done any virtual civic meetings or, or, or neighborhood associations? Yeah, a ton of them. I, I, I just did one last night. What do you and, think? Uh, Is it a, a positive also, improvement? You know, I think it's, I think it's good. There's um, still working out some kinks. You know, certain people are more able to use the uh, technology than others. But uh, in theory, it should give people good access and allow an efficient meeting to be run. And I've seen, I, I think I've probably been on five or six of them. They've all been pretty efficient. I did one in, uh, in one of the suburban towns and they just waited in the waiting room. And we came up to the agenda. They put us live on the screen. We did our presentation. They asked us questions. There are a few questions from the public and we were done. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, there is some efficiency in it. Last night, a particular meeting I was on, there were a few people saying, well, they did it in a webinar format and I couldn't, they couldn't see who else was on the meeting. And um, the BPDA and gentleman who ran the meeting did it very efficiently, said, you know, we're, we're still learning too. We got to mm-hmm. fix that. I love it. And I think some of our project managers love it because as opposed to uh, sitting in a hallway, you know, late at night, we actually are sitting at home and uh, uh, we can be pretty efficient. There's a difference in being face to face. We're doing a, a, you know, another large project in Boston that's at the early stages. And, you know, I'm meeting the elected officials uh, by Zoom, meeting the community groups by Zoom, ultimately doing permitting meetings on Zoom. It's different, but uh, we'll get through it. And I think well, we'll, yeah, think we, did, we did one via Zoom and I actually liked it. I think it was, I think it's run better. I think it, it takes some of the emotion out mm-hmm. of the typical community meetings where, you know, a lot of folks actually ask pertinent questions related to the project versus kind of the whole mob mentality. So, you know, I, I kind of liked the way it was run and then people can't overspeak on top of other people because mm-hmm. it's kind of moderated that way. So I really liked how the city handled it when we had ours a couple I, weeks I, ago. I agree, Dan. I, I, you know, usually you, you get in those rooms and there's a bomb thrower, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and everybody's applauding and, you know, it, it does allow you to stay more to the issues and it does give the uh, moderator uh, whoever that is, uh, the ability to bring people in and out, let them ask their question, make their point and yeah. have it answered and then move on. So there, there's a, I hope some of that will stay around post COVID. Yes, I agree. I'd say one refinement to the process that all groups should make is to disable the chat feature. From my experience, if the camera's on you and you show your face, it's one thing. But if you can anonymously type, it becomes like a Facebook you know, message board and it gets... I think some of the decorum is lost. That's a more general problem in our, in our country right now. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I'm aware we're, we're sort of coming up on time. So maybe last couple of questions and we can jump into uh, overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Oh, I can't nice. wait. All right. Uh, Dan, Ray? Ray, you got anything else? No, nothing in terms of questions. It's, this has been cool. This has been a good catch I was going to ask how you think that building in general is going, two questions, 
Have you run into obviously material shortages? Because that's a huge issue right now in terms of of things. I mean, we had to order appliances eight weeks ago for a project that we're doing. And it's like impossible to find pressure-treated lumber anywhere and things like that. So yeah, this, this lumber thing is like that. It's like the new toilet paper. Um, yeah, just, you it just, really is. You just can't, you just can't find it. But, you know, other than that, I think one thing that, that everyone did early on was try to switch the sourcing from overseas products to, uh, to American products. Just, you know, there was so much that used to come out of China, whether it was, you know, light fixtures or uh, whatever it was. and. Um, so that's definitely been a change as we and trying to pre-order way, way, way ahead of time. We haven't come up with any, you know, real issues yet. And like, where does this lumber thing come from? I, 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 I don't know. But the pressure-treated lumber one is the most real. Apparently, there's yeah. these, there's a couple dipping plants around the country, and all but two are shut down. They had a, an outbreak in one. I, I heard this only like, maybe apocryphal. Yeah, I heard there's only like three in the entire country. Yeah, so you and can't get pressure treated lumber. It's like impossible. Yeah. That is the toilet paper. That's <laughs> it is the it is the new toilet paper. No, other than that, all all's been pretty good, and uh, just yeah, again, you got to stay ahead of it. And then my own, my only other question was uh, in relating to kind of just building in general, and and you know, obviously there was a there was a big push to the smaller living spaces and and the co living and the co working and all that stuff. And you know, obviously, as we said, it might take a couple years for things to go back to normal. So, do you think what in your mind, what do you think things will get adapted to in terms of do you think that a lot of these larger commercial spaces are going to be subdivided and because a lot of people are downsizing? Um, and then on the residential side, do you think there's going to be some changes in the way buildings are being built as well? Well, you know, on the, on the commercial side, I think what we all see is that people have adapted to working at home. And I do believe that it, you know, when you look at the big companies that have said, we're going to continue to work virtually for a long period of time, I think that's a trend that's going to stick and I think it's going to affect new office construction certainly over a long period of time. It it's uh we're not we're we're going to see the availability of of a good amount of office space uh particularly in the downtown areas. On the residential side, we've started to look at what that trend means. So for example, what does the apartment of five years from now look like and how is it different from today? And, uh, you know, one of the things that one of our architectural firms uh, showed us, which is really interesting, is the work at home space may adapt. And, and, and you know, we've thought of it as maybe a little nook or something that it might be that corner of the building or apartment that doesn't have windows. But we've seen some plans now that actually move that to the exterior wall and then have a uh, sliding door, a barn door that opens into the bedroom. So traditionally, the the bedroom would have the windows. Now the office becomes more important and they work together. You know, things like that, I think we we will will see over time. That's great. All right, my last question. So this is a quick one, but... How do you think your national development's decision not to hire me in around 2010 has affected the last 10 years of your business? 
You know, it's a good question, Mark. When you look, when I look back at my career, I, I actually see that as one of the uh, one of the most brilliant decisions that we ever made. Because uh, you, you you've become so successful as a uh, entrepreneur. So uh, oh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I had to turn that around. Oh, uh, I appreciate it. It's like my Michael Jordan not making the high school basketball team moment. Exactly. And I did liken myself to Michael Jordan to anyone who's questioning whether I just did that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to see your vertical leap, but yeah. we can talk about that another time. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you for uh, entertaining that last one. Dan Ray, overrated, underrated, first stop. Yeah, let's do it. Toss it out there. I'll well, go first if you guys okay. got nothing. Uh, I, I, I was going to say nothing related to real estate, but do you think the Celtics will win the Eastern? Already Cup? not an overrated, underrated. Well, it's Celtics' <laughs> chances of winning the <laughs> NBA title. That's not overrated, That's not underrated. underrated. You can. Well, I think the Celtics' chances of winning the NBA title are under very underrated. I think the Celtics are a. A really good team and unfortunately they are just not playing like one right now so uh as we record this we're down uh two games and uh uh i i think there's a chance they can come back and win owning your yeah. own construction company underrated owning your own construction company is a uh, is really a great thing and and uh it's a very hard business in which to succeed but if you're good at it and you know what you're doing and you have uh, the kind of combination of uh, technical sales and people skills, it's a great way to make a living. I got to finance one here. How about just refinancing in general, taking advantage of these low rates? Is uh, neither overrated or underrated because I think uh, people who are really savvy right now are just jumping into it and doing whatever they can to take advantage of these rates right now, particularly as you're seeing, you know, some rent, uh, you know, income issues related to rents. Uh, the more you can make up on the uh, interest side of things, the, the better, the better you are. And it looks like rates will stay pretty flat for a good period of time. Pref equity or mes debt shops, people, the institutional firms that will offer uh, those types of secondary lenders. I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can yeah. overrate or underrate that one. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, isn't, that an, isn't that an either or? I, I guess it could be, but I think I meant just like when you, when you have your primary lender and then you go to the secondary source, the people who are in position two. So is that just leverage in general? Yeah, I'm not even sure what I'm trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that means it's a good time. <laughs> Good time to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. So, All right. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Ted. All right, guys. Uh, this was always fun to get together with you and uh, look forward to uh, hearing the next uh, 50 or so. We look forward to having you on for a third time. All right. Yeah. I want to, I want to be the first. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. See you. Bye. bye. Thanks everyone for uh, listening, rating, subscribing, and sharing with a friend. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in and uh, cheers. Cheers.